Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Kasper Nowitzki, CEO of Nomagic, an e-commerce fulfillment automation company that's raised over $30 million in funding. Kasper, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Brad, thank you for the invitation. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yes. So, you know, I spent some time living and working in the U.S., and part of this journey was starting a company in a dot-com boom a long time ago. And... Um, you know, after four years, the company went bankrupt during the dot-com bust, which was a big disappointment for me, of course, right? Uh, I put a lot of work and emotions into this. And after this, I came back to Poland. That's where I lived. When Google announced that they want to open engineering office, I knew I want to join them. So, so I, you know, I was lucky to do this. Joined them a long time ago when there were roughly 5,000 people in a company and, you know, spent their eight years, a long time. The company when I left was over 50,000. And, you know, I left for a startup to be CTO, but then after a couple of years, I decided to start No Magic, the, the startup I'm a co-founder and CEO of right now. Very cool. And take us back to those days in Silicon Valley in uh, you know, early 2000s or you know, around that time period. What was it like for you? What was life like you know, as a entrepreneur and as a founder back then? So I think the valley is probably similar now. The amount of energy, talent, you know, people in this place trying to change the world. This is uh, incredible, amazing. And I think the dot-com boom was kind of surprising, right? It's it's what we've experienced, maybe similar to what we experienced last year. Uh, there was so much money, you know, everybody was going to change the world. The fight for talent was just horrendous. One of our competitors was offering a three-year lease of BMW Z3 to sign up an engineer, kind of a signing bonus, right? <laughs> We're scratching our heads thinking, how exactly is this possible that, you know, you pay a salary and you do this thing as well? And, the, you know, the world <laughs> verified this, right? Like, so this was no longer on a table during the dot-com bust. <laughs> That's insane. And yeah, I've heard many similar stories to that that just you know, really describe the insanity of that period. So always interesting to hear firsthand because you know, I wasn't uh, I wasn't operating at that time. I think around that time I was eight or nine years old. So always fun to hear. Yes, thank you. I think, you know, the lesson that came after that, right, this is something potentially relevant today that, you know, it's possible to shrink these expectations and, and shrink workforces and focus on the core, focus on, on revenue and profit. And that, you know, there's going to be the better world on the other end. But, you know, it is possible that there will be a period of a year or two that's painful. Yep. Makes sense. And those are definitely helpful lessons as we enter into whatever craziness is happening in the world today. Yes, exactly. And two questions we'd like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick. Is there a founder CEO that you've studied the most and, and really learned from? And if so, you know, who is it and what have you learned from them? So, you know, I was lucky to uh, spend a lot of time at Google. And I think I'm, I'm full of respect to Larry and Sergey. And of course, they, you know, they build an amazing company. But some of the decisions, you know, they've made early on of 
trying to hire very senior people, very experienced people, not being afraid to do this and, you know, giving these great new hires a lot of latitude, you know, space to make decisions, make mistakes, invent things. The kind of entrepreneurial spirit of Google inside, that was very influential on me. It was a super fun place to work at. And, you know, this is something that I'm trying to do at No Magic. And it's not one founder, it's two. But I, I really would like to add something to this. I recently, you know, read a book, an old book by Sam Walton, founder of Walmart. Mm-hmm. And what an incredible story is this, right? And I think, you know, when I read it, right, it's not a tech CEO, <laughs> but still a founder. You know, he set his rules to give the good quality products for a very good price to the people of the U.S., right? And then he's been relentless on, on doing this and, and leaving his values. But he also was so inventive in how he solved problems, right? One of the stories is that, you know, he was a pilot. And today I think Walmart has jets. But, you know, he became a pilot because he had stores that he couldn't drive to. And he wanted to be at these stores frequently to see what's happening there and, you know, improve the business, right? And the first plane that he had was a super crappy plane that everybody who flew with him was super afraid of. And he only upgraded this, you know, after the company was bigger and the distances were longer. So I think the entrepreneurial spirit is is in many places. I recommend the biography or autobiography of Sam Walton. Nice. I love that. Another guest had mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. And it's just so interesting to study these non-tech founders. It seems like everyone today is obsessing over the technology founders. And I think the issue with that is then everyone starts to think the same way, you know, they operate the same way, and then it becomes even harder to really stand out. So there's some incredible lessons to learn from people like Sam Walton, who built a company like Walmart that I think sometimes you forget that there's like an entrepreneur behind it, because it's such a big, massive kind of like faceless enterprise. Yes, yes, today it is. But you know, the way it was built, right in a physical world by building Mm -hmm. stores, the way he was obsessed with, you know, what is in the store? How do you sell it? How do you present it? How do you price it, right? Like his family vacations were to wonderful places in the US by car, but he would stop at every store, <laughs> probably not every store, right? But significant stores are along the way and study, you know, other people from his line of business. So, you know, it's very interesting. And, and I think there is a an encouraging thing that you can, change the physical world as well, not just, you know, not just digital world where the new service can spread like a wildfire. But in the end, we need the physical components of our society as well. Makes sense. And let's talk about some of that physical world that you're part of. So can you walk us through what Nomagic does and the origin story behind the company? Yes. So what we do is we build AI and software, integrate with physical hardware, so industrial robots and industrial components like cameras and safety systems. We integrate this together and deliver robotic station to one of our customers. And we focus on e-commerce fulfillment customers, so companies that are either brands or third-party logistics players who deliver you know, e-commerce packages to us and users. And, you know, in this warehouse, this robot is operating in a robot as a service fashion. So the customers pay us a subscription fee 
And we provide a full service. So not only hardware maintenance, but also there's a component of remote operators who help robots when they have trouble so that you know nobody in the warehouse has to come to the robot or people in the warehouse don't have to come to the robot frequently. And we can resolve some of these problems remotely. And what type of customers are you seeing the most adoption with? Is this small business, mid-market, enterprise? What does that look like? First of all, you know, we're located in Europe. Our company headquarters are in Warsaw, Poland. And today we're focusing on customers in Europe, in mostly in, in Western Europe. We're focusing on, on customers who have already some components of automation of the warehouse. You know, if the warehouse is still very manual, so people walk along the shelves and, and pick items from shelves, one of the best investments in, in automation is automated storage and retrieval systems. Basically, goods are put into plastic bins, and these bins go automatically into some storage system. And when you need to fulfill an order, pick an item, you know, some system brings this bin to a picking station, right? And then today, a person is picking this item and and placing somewhere. And what we automate is that the robot can do this job. And this is actually, you know, one of the most repetitive kind of manual physical tasks uh, in a warehouse, which, you know, someone has to stand there in, in front of this automated storage and retrieval system port, right? And eight hours a day, pick items from there. So I think, you know, applying robots in, in this line of work is actually good. Wow, that's fascinating. And if we're looking at your product and what you offer to customers, this isn't like a little chat bot that just goes on the website that they could probably just try out, see if it works and you know, stop using it the next day if it doesn't work out as they have planned. I'm guessing that you know it's a pretty serious deployment when it comes to using the product. And then I would guess that trust is incredibly important for you to get that adoption. So what are you doing with customers to really build that trust and convince them to use your product? Yeah. So first of all, we're still early in the adoption of this type of product in the, you know, in logistics warehouses. Mm-hmm. We're making very good progress on the product, but we need to convince these customers that, you know, it's going to work for them. We have several strategies and, you know, one of them is that we do a lot of videos. You can go to nomagic.ai to see some of the robots in action so that they can see, you know, how it works. But we also do the test before we come to a customer warehouse, then, you know, the use case that they need, we automate in our lab and we can show them, the, invite them to the lab or show them the video. And we also run factory acceptance tests. So we run a test that demonstrates KPIs before, you know, we go into the warehouse. And in a warehouse, we have, a you know, usually a short pilot where we run the robot on a production line, verifying the, the KPIs, and then we switch to a full production mode. And today, you know, we're focusing on large customers, so companies that have a lot of automation needs, because it's still the building relationship and integrating with their software systems, integrating with their processes, it's quite some effort. So we're trying to find customers where it kind of makes sense on both ends, right? An investment from a customer side into these changes results in multiple robots and an investment from our side also you know, results in multiple robots being deployed. And I think it's hard to say the word robot and warehouse without you know, raising the question of what happens to the workers, which I'm sure you've you know, heard that conversation many times in the past. And that seems to be the, the narrative that's out there in the media. You know, robots are coming, they're going to take away all the jobs. 
What's your position there? And how do you communicate and you educate the market so they understand that this is you know, a positive for the workers in the end? So that's a big discussion uh, happening in the media. I think when we talk to the customers or potential customers, 100% of them say that their first problem is being able to find, motivate, train, and retain employees who are doing these you know, extremely repetitive manual tasks, right? And there's a data on this, right? There is, uh, for example, a Amazon report that was uh, internal report that was leaked earlier this summer, which says that the, I think on average, the annual attrition in these jobs is 130%, right? So, wow. yeah. So that's kind of a data point, right? And this report also says that in some metros, right, in, in some regions, they may run out of people who they'll be able to hire. Basically, you know, once you've worked for the nine months or whatever is the average tenure at Amazon, you're not really planning to go there again, right? So so how do you find more and more people who would come there? And in Europe, you know, we've seen customers where this attrition or, or rotation of the workforce is even higher than this, right? And I, I think... You know, maybe another data point is that in many countries, the demography is such that, you know, younger generations are smaller and the baby boomers, big generations are going to retire soon. In Germany today, there is in order, so this is official statistics, right? In order of 900,000 job vacancies, right? So jobs that nobody wants to take. And in the next 10 years or so, around 5 million people will disappear from a job market. And you know, when you think about these statistics, right, you start to think, okay, you know, how is our society and our economy going to look like if there will be, you know, if we'll be short of so many people contributing to things that we need, right? And logistics is part of, you know, basic necessities, right? Logistics delivers food to our stores, you know, it, it delivers packages from e-commerce as well. So we feel that being able to deliver the service, right, more automatically and faster, smoother, and without so many manual tasks along the way is, is actually important, right? So going back to your question, I think one of my worries is that we do not automate fast enough. You know, if these curves uh, progress sufficiently, right, then then we'll start to feel the pinch that, you know, some services are not available any longer, and it will be very surprised and very sad, then our quality of life may go down. That makes a whole lot of sense. And that's a, a fair concern. And that data is, I think, especially helpful in really understanding, you know, the other side of the argument about what all of this stuff means. Another question for you is in regards to market category. So I had introduced you as an e-commerce fulfillment automation platform or company. Is that accurate? Or how would you describe the market category that you fall within? Yeah, so I think we are exactly in you know in a in a space that you've described, which is e-commerce fulfillment. And for e-commerce fulfillment, the big players they're building large warehouses that a lot of automation technology is built in. These automated storage and retrieval systems, conveyors, packing machines, and you know sorters, so that packages in different directions go to right trucks and all of this, right? And 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 we are one of the players who's trying to automate part of this, right? We're not a big integrator who would build the whole warehouse like this. You know, we're trying to specialize in bringing this very difficult piece of technology that would automate these repetitive manual actions. And this is, I would say, on the borderline, what with technology that we have today can do. 
Mm-hmm. And so the problem is very interesting, hard to solve. And the reason for this is that <laughs> human operators or associates who do these jobs today, they're actually very good. So they do these actions very quickly. They also notice various anomalies, right? So if you pick a box and the box starts to open, you're supposed to place it somewhere. You're going to feel this, notice this, you know, use your other hand, squeeze the box, put it where it should happen. Robots do not have this level of understanding of the world. And if the box opens and the content flies out, right, it's it's a mess that the robot cannot clean up on its own and someone has to come in and, and, and fix this, right? So trying to deal with the speed, accuracy, and autonomy of people and, and match this with a robotic solution is actually a difficult problem. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see that. In terms of bringing such an innovative and potentially game-changing technology to market, what would you say has been the greatest challenge that you've faced so far? And how do you overcome that challenge? So I think, you know, I already talked about the technology being difficult, but we're a startup specializing in technology. So, so this, is, uh, this is hard, but this is what we do. So a lot of customers we work with right now, they're visionary, right? They understand the dynamics in the market. They know that they need to automate their operations. So they're kind of on board in what we are doing and, and we're partnering very strongly, you know, with them to deliver this change. But some of the challenges that show up there is such that to improve overall operations of the system, the customer needs to make some changes in their existing processes, right? And this is not always easy. So they always do the changes in their processes, but these are you know, slightly different than they're used to. And they usually require some software changes for the software that manages the warehouse. They also may require you know, changing instructions for people who work in the warehouse. And these things are kind of slow and we need to demonstrate an ROI. I think we're successful in negotiating these changes, but they're always slower than the you know, pace of an aggressive startup. <laughs> <laughs> and when it comes to early adopters, how long until you run out of them and have to you know, cross the chasm and try to get the mainstream to adopt something like this and, and those who are maybe a bit more resistant to change and resistant to technology? That's a very good question. So I think that, you know, this market is very large, right? So I, I think for a while we'll be among the super early adopters and, and kind of early adopters. But we've seen this change in the last, I would say, two years. So throughout the COVID times, we had a number of customers who are usually large brands with this long-term vision of, you know, building their fulfillment systems to the highest level of automation. Mm-hmm. But we've also seen during this time that third-party logistics operators, so those are companies that don't own a brand, but they fulfill on behalf of you know, some other sellers. Traditionally, they had a short investment span because their contracts with customers are short, something like three years. And it's very hard to bring this expensive automation into the warehouse you know, with such a short lifespan, right? But during the last two years, the strategy of these companies changed, right? And a number of them have started investing very heavily into automating their warehouses, automating storage systems, and you know, inviting us into the first projects that they start to do in automation of picking as well. And I think there are early adopters among 3PLs, but it means that you know a whole new category of users switch their thinking, right? And I think you know it's it's good for us. And, and I think this demographic dynamic that is happening right now is going to push many more operators into to become more active customers. 
And it sounds like from the data that you had shared, a lot of them don't really have a choice, right? Their hand is kind of being forced to need to explore solutions like this, which I'm sure makes it easier for you where you're not selling a, a nice to have, it's a must have if they're not able to find the workers that they need. Yes, I think so. So, you know, if I were an operator, I, w- I would worry <laughs> about each of the holiday seasons, right? This is one of the things that are happening in the e-commerce fulfillment is that there are these high seasons, right? And, and fourth quarter, you know, we're in it right now, right? Like it's it's when the, the need is, you know, roughly double of uh, summer season when the sales are lower. And mm-hmm. how exactly, you know, do you scale your workforce for three months of the year, right? Like how do you find people who only want to work during this time? And how do you train, motivate them and, and you know, make your warehouse work in the most important period of the time with people uh, with whom you have a short-term relationship, right? And I think the, the technology we're introducing helps with this because once you have robots in the warehouse, they can work any day of the week or a month or a year, and they can work one shift, two shifts, three shifts. And, you know, if Sundays are needed, they'll work on Sundays as well. Makes a lot of sense. All right, last question here before we wrap. If we zoom out into the future, what's the next three years going to look like for the company? So I think there's still a lot to be done on the product side. So R&D for the, the speed, autonomy, and, and ability to grasp different things done by our robots. But I think it's also a lot of go-to-market. So finding and, and working with these customers to deliver excellent return on investment uh, to them on these robots and scaling this. One of our goals is to get to a thousand robots in production. And, you know, I, I think this is a company has done it until now. And, and this is one of our goals. And looking at numbers of people employed in logistics, the thousand is still a, a drop in a sea of need. Makes a lot of sense. And that's a, certainly a, an exciting vision here. Unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. Uh, before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey as you build this incredible company out, where's the best place for them to go? I think it's LinkedIn. Just follow us, nomagic.ai. Perfect. And they'll have the spelling of your name. So I think from how I introduced it, no one's going to have any idea how to spell it. So we'll make sure to include that as well. (laughs) Thank you, Brett. All right. Thanks so much for the time and wish you best of luck in executing on this vision. Thank you. All right. Take care.